Good morning. Oh, everybody is wide awake this morning. It is so good to see you all again here this morning. Uh, I want to thank you all uh, personally for your prayers this past week as my family and I were able to get away for a couple days uh, just to be together and enjoy some time together, um, which was really nice as a part of uh, Brooklyn's 10th birthday. We were able to get out of town for a little bit and enjoy some beach time and some uh, time in uh, St. Augustine, Florida, which was uh, super nice if you've never been. Um, it's a very interesting place, a lot of history. So it was good to be away, uh, good to be just uh, us alone, talking, praying together, laughing together, playing games together. And uh, man, I tell you, it was a wonderful time. And by God's grace, here we are again. Now, many of you have asked, uh, Pastor, are you uh, feeling refreshed? Are you feeling recovered, ready to go? Um, I was up until yesterday uh, when I had to play the role of dad and spent the entire day at a softball tournament with my oldest child. And so if you've ever experienced uh, the life of a softball tournament, um, take lots of prayer, lots of mercy, and lots of fluids, and you will be okay to get through it. But uh, it was a good day at the ball fields and a long day. So we are back. I'm happy to be here, happy to be with you again this morning. We are still moving through the Gospel of Mark today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We are still in our series uh, called The Gospel, and I've got to share with you, this has just been an, um, <clears throat> this has been a really really encouraging study uh, for me because I believe that we are learning so much more about Jesus Christ. And so I'm hoping and praying that as you've been walking through this study with us, that you've been learning more about Christ as well, learning more about the good news of what it means to, to know him as Savior and Lord. And so uh, with that being said, it has just been a joy uh, to walk through this study together and to be reminded of the one who should be, who is, and who always will be the center and the object of our worship. So uh, I don't know about you, but I tell you, when I come in every Sunday morning, I am thankful that by God's grace, we have gathered together. Um, when I'm walking through my week and we hit the midweek where we gather for prayer, I am thankful and excited that by God's grace, we are gathered together for the purpose of prayer. And then I am thankful that we as believers in Christ, by God's sovereign grace, that we are able to gather again the following Sunday, as long as he allows and wills it to be able to gather for worship to him and him alone. So this morning will be no different as we dive more into Jesus Christ, learning more about him, more about his teachings, and what it is that we can learn from him as he continues on his journey to Jerusalem. So let's just go ahead and dive into the text this morning, and hopefully we will learn more about why we worship the king. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And once you have found your place in the gospel of Mark, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. Now this is the gospel of Mark, the good news of Jesus Christ, as recorded by Mark. In Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, Mark writes, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside of the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you again for this day. Lord, we thank you for every opportunity that we have as believers in Jesus Christ to be able to gather for the purpose of worship. Father, we thank you for the opportunities that we have to study your word, for the opportunities that we have to call out and cry out to your name. Father, we praise you that already this morning in our Sunday schools, we've had an opportunity to experience fellowship, but then also to experience your word as well. And Father, we pray that as we continue to move through our service today, Father, we ask that you and you alone would continue to be glorified. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we've had to glorify you already through uh, worship, through giving. And Father, we pray now that as we prepare to open and unpack Mark chapter 11, Father, we ask that you and you alone would be glorified. Lord, we praise you and thank you for our, our families and our peoples that are represented here, the generations that are represented in our church. We thank you for the sweet sounds of our children and the opportunities that we have as one faith family to be able to encourage them and teach them your ways. And Father, I pray that that would be our heart's cry, that we would move from generation to generation, generation passing, upon, passing on your truth uh, to the next generation that will lead our churches. Now, Father, we ask this morning that you would be with us as we begin prepare to unpack this truth today. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. We thank you for the word. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you through the study of your word. And so, Father, we pray in these next few moments together that you and you alone would be glorified. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for delighting in us. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, if I could set the scene for you for just a moment, uh, I want us to remember and look back that what we're about to see from this point forward in the Gospel of Mark, looking from Mark chapter 11 to Mark chapter 16, Mark actually records in these chapters the final week of the Lord's earthly life. So as we will begin to see today, Mark spends roughly one-third of his Gospel week on Passion or on the Passion Week, if you will. In fact, some scholars have referred to Mark's gospel as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Now, we will see today from Mark that this is going to be a very busy week for Jesus Christ, and ultimately, we're going to unpack this week 
over the weeks to come together. And then ultimately, this Passion Week will culminate in his death on the cross and then his glorious resurrection. So what we see here is this week begins with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. Now, this is what many have called the triumphal entry. In fact, many of our Bibles even acknowledge this phrase because as you're reading through, you get to Mark 11, you probably have some sort of subheading that says the triumphal entry. So this reference is actually important to us because here Jesus is making a clear and apparent declaration of his kingship. Now, this is important because it's clearly recorded in all four Gospels. We see it in Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 11, Luke 19, and then again in John chapter 12. Now, for Jesus Christ at this point, there is no turning back from what is to come. As recorded in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And now what we will see is he will be slain in both space and time. The atonement for our sin that was ordained from eternity past now becomes the greatest historical moment for all the world to see. Now, we know that Jesus' arrival comes during Passover. Now, imagine Passover for a moment during Jesus' day in Jerusalem. Chances are the population of Jerusalem would swell to roughly three times its normal size as pilgrims from all over the area, uh, area would descend upon Jerusalem. However, for this particular Jerusalem, uh, this particular pass, this time, unlike any other that they had ever experienced before. Because with this Passover, the king has now come. And so what we are going to walk through in our text today will answer the following question, which is this. Why worship the king? Well, first, we see that we worship the king because it is Jesus who is always in control. We see this in verses 1 through 3. Now, Jesus and the disciples are drawing closer to Jerusalem. We know that they have come to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Now, this was actually the, the area of the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead in John chapter 11. Now, Bethany is the place where Jesus would actually stay during the final week of his life. Now, what happens next is Jesus then sends out two disciples to a local village. He tells them that they will go to the village, they will find a colt tied up that no one had ever sat upon before. Now, notice this. Notice the parallel to the Old Testament here. Just as the Ark of the Covenant needed an unyoked car uh, carrier, like we see in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7, Numbers 19, and again in Deuteronomy 21, so does the true Ark of the Covenant require an animal that has not been written. So the text here shows us that Jesus Christ clearly is always in complete control. Now it's just like we talked about last week. Jesus has everything planned out down to the last detail. From the moment Jesus enters Jerusalem, the rights to his deity 
are present. In other words, for us today, as we walk through this Passion Week, what we should clearly see is that Jesus Christ truly is deity, and therefore as believers in Christ, we can now proclaim that he alone is Lord. You see, to say Jesus is Lord is to acknowledge that he is master of every detail of his divine destiny. It's like Sinclair Ferguson says at this moment. His majesty and authority began to shine through from the moment of his entry into Jerusalem. Now, we being readers, reading years later, we have known about his deity all along. But in this particular moment, we now see where Jesus' absolute control really begins to take shape. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we see that Jesus is sovereign over all situations? Do we see that Jesus is sovereign over all of our circumstances? When we celebrate in life, do we look to God and say, Lord, we recognize in this moment of celebration, you and you alone are worthy of our praise because you and you alone are in control of this moment. In the moment of our tragedies, in the moments of our hurts, even in the moments where we find ourselves face down on the floor and broken, can we look to the Lord and say, Lord, even in this moment, you are sovereign over all things. You have control over all things. When we come to worship, what frustrations do we bring to the table? What fears come in to worship? What fears do we bring that ultimately become idols in our lives? Because the reality is when we come to worship and we bring fears and we bring frustrations and they distract us from worship, then we miss the freedom that comes from knowing the one who is in charge and the one who is in control of all things. You see, already in our first three verses, we see Jesus is always in complete control. Secondly, we see this. We see that not only is he in complete control, we see that Jesus submits to the word of God. This is seen in verses four through seven. Now, clearly this begs the question, can Jesus have absolute control as deity and yet submit himself to the word? Well, the answer to the question is a resounding yes. Look what happens in these following verses in verses four through seven. The two disciples went and they found everything as Jesus has said it would be, therefore proving his deity, therefore proving his absolute control, and proving his sovereignty as well. Now, notice what happens here, okay? Pay attention to this. Outside of riding on a boat, here is the one and only time that Jesus Christ rides an animal, and that animal is a small donkey. Now think about that for a moment. Because if you're the king of kings, if you're the lord of lords, why would you choose a small donkey to ride into Jerusalem in order to celebrate yourself? 
I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if given the opportunity to celebrate myself, let's say it's my birthday, and my wife says, dear, go rent any vehicle you want to rent and just celebrate yourself. I've got options at this point. I'm probably going to choose something nice that I've never driven before in my life. Hopefully, it'll be something that won't kill me, and it'll be something I will enjoy. Now, because the weather is so nice, it will either be a convertible or it will be air-conditioned. I don't know. If I had complete authority and all bets were off, I may look to one of our brothers who works over at MacDill Air Force Base and say, hey, can you put me in a plane? Because that would be awesome. And then let's buzz the church on a Sunday morning. How fun would that be? That would be great. Or I could choose a Prius. No offense, my Prius people. God bless you. But six foot two offensive lineman is not getting in a Prius. Okay? Or I could, choose, I could choose a massive airplane that, that over at McDill carries tanks, carries all kinds of stuff, carries people. People jump out of it. I'm not jumping out with them. I'm going to high-five them on their way out the door. I can still buzz the church, or I can choose a two-seater Miata. I'm going to go ahead and tell you all, I cannot get in one of those cars. Why would I choose that? You see, Jesus had a choice to make here. And notice what our king of kings does. He chooses a donkey. Now, why is the donkey so important? Well, clearly we see this moment is highly symbolic of Old Testament prophecy. Now, notice the phrasing of the words here. When asked, why are you taking the donkey? Notice what Jesus tells them to say. He says to tell them the Lord has need of it. Now, if you go back to Mark chapter 2, verse 25, you will see that this is the same phrase that Jesus uses to justify the days when King David's men were eating the sacred bread of the temple and therefore justifying why he and the disciples were taking grains from the field and eating on the Sabbath day. But then notice this about Jesus. Jesus is riding on a donkey, which means what he is doing here with the donkey is he is declaring both his kingship as he enters Jerusalem, but then he's also declaring the fulfillment of the prophecy that is found in Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foil of a donkey. Now we can go on from there on Zechariah 9 here because from there we learn that he has come to set the prisoners free. We learn that he has come to restore his people. We also learn that his kingdom and rule would expand from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. Our Lord lived his life from beginning to end in total submission to the word of God. You see, Jesus Christ, life, death, 
burial, and ultimately his resurrection were the unfolding of the story of redemption. A story of redemption that we need to hear. A story of redemption that we believe in. A story of redemption that we now proclaim to those who desperately need it. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the word of God. The same word, according to John chapter 5, verse 39, which testifies about him alone. So you see, we worship the king because he is always in control. We worship the king because he submits himself to the word. Thirdly, we see that we worship the king because Jesus embodies humility. Look again here at verses 7 through 8. We see that Jesus is riding the colt, and he, this parade begins in Jerusalem. Again, going back to Zechariah 9, this is being fulfilled at this moment. Now, notice this. Jesus here had no need to break in this cult. Notice he had no need to break in the young donkey. Now, most people often glaze over this part in the passage, and they don't think about this, but think about this for a moment, okay? Because I'm in a home now with four girls, and they are screaming for an animal, okay? They are screaming for a puppy. Now, if you've ever had a puppy in your house, what's one of the first things you have to do? Train the animal. You have to teach it where it goes to the bathroom and where it does it. You have to train the animal not to eat your nice shoes even though you leave them on the floor. You have to train the animal that, like when I had an animal when I was younger, my pillow is not the place where you use the bathroom. Okay? That's just wrong. We don't do that. But notice what Jesus does here. You never see this moment where he has to train this animal. You never see a moment where he has to break in this donkey. Why? Because the donkey knew its creator. It knew who was riding on his back. Now, anyway, back to our text. That was a side note. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, we now see the response of the people. We see in uh, verse 8, it says that many spread their cloaks on the road and others uh, spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now, notice that this is a festive time of celebration as the people welcomed the king to Jerusalem. Now, by coming to Jerusalem in this way, Jesus now proclaims openly what he himself had forbidden from Mark chapter 1 all the way through Mark chapter 10. He was now revealing that he is the king. Now, Jesus had a purpose for this moment. Don't miss the purpose of the declaration. Jesus intentionally presents himself as the king. He intentionally presents himself as the Messiah because he knew it would provoke the Jewish leaders resulting in his crucifixion. And yet, here we see Jesus and we still get a glimpse of his gracious humility. It is Jesus who is royalty. It is Jesus who is deity all wrapped 
into one, and yet it is Jesus who allows this proclamation in order to provoke the leaders so that the crucifixion would happen. Remember point number one, he is in total control, and so we see him move forward, not only as the king of kings, but as a king who is living in lowliness, who will ultimately experience weakness and then brokenness and do it all as service to the people for the glory of God. You see, Jesus comes in both humility and simplicity with one purpose in mind, and that is to serve others through his death and his resurrection. Now, in reading this passage, we need to keep in mind Mark's audience here. You see, these were Christians living in Rome. They were used to seeing Roman parades. They were used to seeing Romans fanfare. They were used to seeing generals and powerful politicians enter the streets of Rome. There was always pomp and circumstance, music and military. In fact, one of the great defenses that the Roman army enjoyed was the fact that the metal they wore would shine so bright in the sun that it could be used as a defense in order to blind their enemies. And so this is what the people were used to seeing. They were used to seeing the full glory of the Roman Empire on display. So imagine the stark contrast that has now entered their minds uh, of the Roman audience. Imagine that they were envisioning here Roman glory, and yet they were seeing and reading Jesus's humility. Now, here's the truth of this moment for Mark's audience. Even though Jesus Christ entered with all humility, it would be Jesus' kingdom that would be established forever while the Roman Empire would ultimately disappear into oblivion and be buried within our history books. Sinclair Ferguson again writes of this moment. He says that Jesus had come to take his throne, but he had committed himself to begin his reign from a cross. You see, before the throne, there is a cross. And so Jesus begins his reign with humble service, and he begins his reign with the atonement. Jesus embodies humility, and that's why we worship him as king. Point number four, we worship him as king because Jesus alone is the one who saves. We see this in verses 9 and 10. Here we see the shouts of the crowd. Now pay attention for a moment to their words. They say to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the, the Lord. Now these words could not be truer and yet could not have been more misunderstood by those who were shouting them. You see, to say the word Hosanna literally means save 
I pray, which comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which says, save us, we pray, O Lord. Bless you, pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You see, for the people in Jerusalem, the Passover celebrated the Hebrews' people's deliverance out of Egypt. So the nation of Israel are now anticipating a messianic liberation and some sort of deliverance from the Roman Empire. However, the prophecies were not being fulfilled in the way that they had thought. The prophecies of the Old Testament were not being fulfilled in the way that they had hoped or the way that they had believed or even imagined. Yes, Jesus Christ is king, but he has not come to purge Israel from foreign domination. Rather, Jesus has come here to purge his people from their sin. And so the people were looking and they were longing for a temporal, for a political, or even a military savior. However, Jesus is bringing to them what only he can bring, a complete and eternal salvation of the body and soul. You see, the people wanted The people expected a savior only for the Jews. But here we see Jesus is the savior for the whole world. Jesus is the savior for any and all who would believe upon his name and who would believe that he is savior and Lord. In John chapter one, verse 12, we read that uh, these verses, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In John chapter three, verse 16, and we know this one all too well, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In Acts chapter 4 verse 12 we read and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven uh, given among men by which we must be saved. You see Christ's salvation, Christ's triumph would be the victory of life over death. It would be the victory of salvation over sin. It would be the victory of truth over error. It would be the victory of love over hate. It would be the victory of forgiveness over condemnation. The people cried out for salvation, and Jesus was, is, and always will be the only one who can give it to them. Do we realize, do we understand that it is Christ and Christ alone who can save us? Nothing else can save us. No one else will save us. It doesn't matter how many degrees we get. It doesn't matter how fancy our first name is. It doesn't matter how successful we are in life. It doesn't matter for our children how good they are in theater or how good they are in school. It doesn't matter how many times they make the honor roll. It doesn't matter how many times they make the dean's list. It doesn't matter the kind of softball player they are or the soccer player they are. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is that Jesus Christ and Christ alone saves. We cannot, we will not 
ever earn our way to heaven. It only comes through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is why we worship the king. Point number five, we worship the king also because Jesus always acts justly. Now we get to verse 11 here, and I want us to pay attention to verse 11 because notice the, the change that now happens once we get to verse 11. You see, after the celebration and the crowds have been shouting, all of a sudden we see a complete turn in the text. The day ends uneventfully. Now think about this for a moment, okay? We have just walked through verses 1 through 10 of Mark chapter 11. We have seen prophecy fulfilled. We have seen Jesus Christ tell the disciples what was going to happen, and it, it happened the way they thought it was going to happen. We see the people lining the streets. They are singing Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The people are fired up, and then all of a sudden you arrive at verse 11, and I don't know about you, but as I get into verse 11, I'm thinking that if Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and people are celebrating him, clearly they're going to want to go where he's going. So I imagine in this moment, they're going to go with him to the temple. But notice that's not what happens here. In this moment, I almost imagine it this way. I imagine sitting in a locker room and your coach firing you up, giving you the most impassioned, crazy speech that you can imagine, so much so that as an athlete, you're prepared to run through a brick wall for your coach. And then all of a sudden, he says, let's go get them. So you run out of the locker room, run out to the field, only to realize you're a day early and no one's there. There's no game. There's no fans, there's no band, there's no celebration. It's just an empty stadium with the lights off. You see, that's what happens here in verse 11. But then I want to go ahead and encourage you. Go ahead and read ahead in the weeks to come. Start reading tonight in verse 12 and what happens because what we're going to see is, is even though this day ends uneventfully, we're going to see that tomorrow will be a different day. You see, for Jesus today in our text, he enters Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, but then notice this, he looks around carefully. He then sees that the hour is late, he then leaves with the disciples for Bethany. But in this moment, Jesus has not come to the temple as a tourist during the time of Passover. He has not come as a pilgrim caught up in the fanfare. Rather, he comes to the temple, makes a commanding survey of the situation, and then he goes away only to prepare to return the very next day. Truthfully, after what we have seen and read, we would probably be like the disciples and want to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, this was your moment. This was the perfect moment for you to claim your messianic throne. This was the perfect moment for you to claim the kingdom. People were fired up. They were ready to go. Like you, you missed an opportunity. But notice that's not what happens. Notice the crowds are gone. There is no fanfare. And Jesus leaves with the twelve. We would think at this point that Jesus has maybe lost his mind. Maybe the crowds have gotten to him and he just forgot the next step. But then pay attention here. Because when you go back and read Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, we read these words. 
Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. You see, the refining fire has arrived to purify that which is wretched. He will ultimately start his work in the temple, but he will finish his work on the cross. Jesus here acts justly when he judges and he refines. He will cleanse the temple with his fire. That day is coming, and so too is the day to come in the Gospel of Mark where we will see him cleanse us from our sin with his fire. Again, Jesus' timing is perfect. He is always in control. He submits himself to the word. He embodies humility. It is Christ alone who saves, and it is Christ alone who acts justly. You see, in this moment of Mark chapter 11, we see that our king has come, and thanks be to God, by his grace, we know how this story ends, and as believers, we can rest assured that he is coming again. As we see here, Jesus, our King, is worthy of our worship. He is in control of all things. He is sovereign over all. He has come to fulfill the word. He has come to give us an example of humility and to embody it. It is Christ alone again who can save, and it is Christ who is the one who acts justly. Now, few bowed before Jesus on this day. But at the end of the day, we see that the few who bowed were gone. And even though a few bowed, and even though at the end of the day the crowds were gone, we can know this today as believers in Christ. According to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, there is a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are we ready for that day? Are we longing for that day? Are we prepared to worship the King? I'm going to ask Corey and the praise team to come up and join us. And we're going to take a few moments to reflect on that very question. And then we'll close out with a time of prayer. So let's go ahead and pray together. With every head bowed and every eyes closed, reflect for a moment, if you will, on this question. Is Jesus the king of your life? Is he the one who is seated in authority? Or do we treat him as an afterthought? king has come. He is worthy of our worship.
are we ready to worship the King?